Welcome back, Rage Nation. So real quick shout out that I want to give people is one of our friends from Charleston, South Carolina, started creating a bunch of tokens and a bunch of widgets and a bunch of other things that people need for their wargaming needs. And he does this with his awesome 3D printer that he decided to pick up. He started an Etsy page. It's called bardingtokens.com. And if you go to that, you can get lots of things for Malifaux. You can get steppers. You can get tokens for you know your corpse uh, drops and schemes. You can also get base identifiers for things like Warhammer Underworlds, D&D identifiers, and lots, lots more. Even creates things like dividers and things that you can put in your foam. So check them out. Really decently priced, and I'd highly recommend it. Just good, solid printing that will definitely help in your tabletop gaming needs. Once again, that's at bardingtokens.com. Now, on to the show. Welcome back, Rage Nation. Definitely not PR friends. Myself, Pete. He needs to stop, like, fucking getting cute with these kicks. John the Mountain Man Stokes. You're not putting them on my models, motherfucker. Chris the non-tech Asian. Put the tape measure up and get some wages. You, yeah, no, you really frustrated me. You walked away and you came back and your scalpel had been thrown across the room. <laughs> I'm just here so I don't get fined. I will will share with you my one rage quit story. You know, I'm a robot and I don't have a solo across now eight. This is going to be a really great opportunity for everybody to see how you effed up. Welcome back, Rage Nation. Welcome to the Golden Age. We got Pete here with Chris, and we also have a very special guest. We have somebody that a lot of our listeners might know. If not, I highly recommend giving him a listen. But we have Craig from Third Floor Wars on with us. Craig, how you doing? Doing great, guys. I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, and I've been listening to your podcast now for pretty much the six months I've been getting into Malifaux because you guys put out a lot of really in-depth, just very new player-friendly content, but also some of the in-depth strategies of the higher-level play. So after I was listening the other day, I just sent you a message. I was like, you want to know what? Do you want to do some cross-content? And here we are. Yeah, it works out perfect, man. But what we're going to talk about today, folks, is we're going to talk about the golden age of gaming because what I noticed about Third Floor Wars is that you you do focus mostly on Malifaux, but kind of like us, you you like to look at other games that are across the systems and you know what's good, what's not good, what are some things you might like about different types of games. So we do that as well. And I thought a great topic for us to speak about is this golden age of gaming, because I think a lot of people are competing a lot of times over which game do I want to put my time into, which yep. one's a good game. And I just thought that would be a really awesome topic for us to discuss today. Yeah, I mean, I, I mostly focus, obviously, on Malifaux that uh, people that listen know. But uh, I'm literally, while we're recording, sitting on the third floor. And I have a whole wall of board games um, <laughs> that are too deep. So, and this is Malifaux is one of probably, I don't know, I guess, eight different mini games uh, that I've played. So, it, um, we're, I agree. I think this is a great topic. I think this is uh, probably the best time to be a gamer. And what I mean by golden age, obviously I'm a, I'm a history guy being a history teacher, but golden age is any time when it's the best time to be in that time period. And I think if you look at nerding and gaming in general, you look at kind of when we grew up. And when I say we, I know I grew up in the eighties and nineties 
And I don't know about you, Craig, but when I was coming up, nerding was not popular. If you were the guy playing D&D or magic or any kind of games like that, you know, you ended up sometimes with your head in the toilet. Well, I led a double life (laughs) all through middle school and high school. I mean, there was so I mean, like I was the guy that, you know, still had friends. (laughs) <laughs> like in high school, <laughs> but I had like my secret friends that I played D and D with. And we oh, yeah. played, you know, oh, Risk yeah. and uh, the old Avalon games. But you know, it uh, it was not something I talked about with my other group of friends. Uh, so I know exactly oh, yeah. what you're saying, and that really didn't change. Jesus, that didn't change. But at the most, ten years ago, um, yeah, I think I where the shifted. I think where the shift started happening is when. Honestly, I think, and Chris, you can probably attest to this more because this is your wheelhouse, but I feel like comic books transitioning to movies is kind of where it really started spinning. I don't don't know if you would agree, Chris, that that's when it became popular to kind of be nerdy. Yeah, I think that that's probably a good line. When when people started realizing, hey, this nerdy stuff is more normal and I want to find a buddy that I can ask questions of that he's a comic book nerd, but hey, this dude's totally a normal dude. Um, that's that's probably a really a really good line. I think that was the loggerhead. I agree with you, um, Chris. And then I think what happened after that, which really I think emptied the floodgates, is when Stranger Things came out. And yeah. I think Stranger Things had a pretty big impact on just like that. There's a whole other world out there, people. Oh, for sure. And. That's kind of what we want to talk about is just, okay, now we are in this golden age where it's acceptable, it's being marketed, you have these companies that are buying licenses to all these video games, and there's so many different games out there, and we want to kind of evaluate them, give our opinions, of course, but we also want to maybe give some advice on how do you decide where you're going to spend your time, because since there is so much going on as far as get the games it's like how do you spend your time because your time is you only have so much of that resource so we're going to try to help the listeners out with that as far as it goes so i think the main thing we should start with is okay well what do you spend most of your time gaming so what is the game that you are focused on so obviously craig you're you're focused on malifaux so what does that look like for you and why have you chosen that game system so kind of my story to Malifaux, um, and I'll make it as short as possible for you. So I, you know, did the did the role-playing games, found Magic the Gathering, did that for a while. I was actually uh, part of the beta test for uh, uh, Magic the Gathering. So now you know how goddamn old I am. <laughs> From there, that got me into the game stores, right? So the Magic the Gathering did. And I kept noticing people playing with uh, little miniatures, and it was so, like, in my mind, it was so different than anything I'd ever seen before. Transition to kind of uh, finding Euro board games when that became a thing um, and really getting back into gaming again. So this is, you know, well post-college. And then just ran into miniatures again, got into Warhammer, found that fascinating, found out I really enjoyed the hobby aspect of it. That goes for 10 years, maybe. Uh, I got a good rage quit story for you on this one. <laughs> yes, yes, we love it. <laughs> Leave 40K and find Guild Ball. Um, and Guild Ball, I always will say, is the game that made me realize that you can have miniatures and a good rule set all at the same time. Yep. And so Guild Ball saved me because I was, if with, if not for Guild Ball, I think I would have stopped playing miniatures. Played Guild Ball for a good year and a half, really liked it, really enjoyed it, ended up finding problems with it, 
and I've always been a big fan of Weird West. So browsing around on the web, looking for models, come across Malifaux, um, say, fuck it. I bought, buy a core book, start reading it, get my first game in. And I would say three games into it, I knew it was the game I that was going to be the game. Nice. So what are some of the things you like about Malifaux? What are some of the mechanics or some of the maybe models that you're just like, yeah, this is why I spend my time on this game? Well, I mean, it was the aesthetics that brought me into it um, that, that got my attention at first. But if, if I was going to boil it all down, as I have yet to find a game, a, a miniature game, uh, you find it in board games all the time. I've yet to find a miniature game with um, what I like to call play this much player agency. I don't think there's another game out there right now, or at least if there is, I haven't seen it yet, that the decisions the players make have the largest impact on the results. And when I say the decisions, I mean in-game. So not the decisions you made before the game, not the models that you bought before the game, not, um, you know, the randomness of the dice. It, it, I will make a very strong argument that unlike any, uh, unlike a lot of other mini games out there, the person who makes the best decisions at the table for the two hours that you play Malifaux is the person who's going to win the game. I, w- I would agree with that. I would argue also, though, that I feel like Infinity is also on that same side of the coin where there are a lot of mistakes the player can make in-game and a lot of creative decisions that a player has. And the reason why I, I've kind of not gotten as hard into Infinity over Malifaux is I like the depth of both games, but... And I think Infinity might go through a change with their new edition just because of this. But I feel like Infinity is so overwhelming and so rules intensive that that inhibits a lot of people. But it definitely is the same way. Yeah, they I mean, they suffer from a lack of elegance. So like the, the, the game system I talk about when I try to explain to people, you know, what I consider an elegant rule system, I go to Guild Ball. Um, I think Guild Ball has one of the most elegant rule systems out there for miniature games. It's tight as hell. Um, it's very, and, and it ends up becoming part of the reason why I stopped playing it, um, in a weird way. Infinity is just, for me, it was just too much. It was just yeah. too much. And yeah, I, and I've got nothing against it. I've got people whose, whose opinion I respect that enjoy infinity. Um, I've painted some of the models for it, um, read the rules a few times and yeah, it just, it didn't scratch the itch. And for whatever reason, Malifaux did. Yeah, and I can definitely understand that. Obviously, with us getting a little more into Malifaux now, I'd probably say Malifaux right now is probably actually my primary game just because Guild Ball is kind of on the downtick, especially in the Southeast. But Chris, what about you? You're kind of on the an interesting swing of the pendulum here. You're actually kind of bouncing back and forth between a lot of different things. So how how are these games catching your attention and what are you kind of you know flocking to right now? Yeah, so, and actually, I don't think I've shared this story on the podcast before, so I'll kind of share the story of how I got into miniatures games in general. I grew up in the, I was born, you know, early in the 80s, and uh, I basically grew up in the 90s, and I remember I used to go into comic shops. There was one specifically that I would go into because it was right next to a restaurant that my family would often eat at, and I'd go in there while we were waiting for a table or whatever. My parents would say, hey, yeah, you can go be back in 15 minutes or whatever it is. And one side of it was comics. The other side was games. And I always saw these miniatures and I thought they were cool. And I always liked games of strategy or at least what I thought were games of strategy. Um, 
with my limited understanding, right? Like my grandfather taught me how to play chess and, you know, I, I would, I, I liked playing different games. Um, and then sort of like you, Craig, like I got to that point where it opened up to Euro games mm-hmm. where it wasn't so much about just roll the dice and playing risk. And that's kind of where I draw a line in, with the people that I'm talking to about games I know I'm dealing with somebody that's more seriously into games when they're talking about more than just the games that you see on the Walmart shelves. Like Jenga. <laughs> they go beyond Milton Bradley. Yes, that's right. they go beyond Milton Bradley. That's, that's a good way of putting it. Um, and then I'm like, okay, this is somebody that really knows games, right? Like I, I was at a, a dinner recently where I said, man, I just really played this amazing game, but it was super in-depth. And the person that I, one of the people at the dinner table was like, well, you know, my, my father-in-law probably has it. He has every game. And I'm like, I don't know if he'd have one like this. And he's like, well, what game is it? And I said, it was called Twilight Imperium. Oh, so good. <laughs> and, <laughs> and my, my, I, I told him a little bit about it. I said, yeah, we, we ended up playing it for like 12 hours. I, I don't know that he would have it. It's a pretty, like, a big investment. It's like 150 bucks. And he looked at me and his eyes got big like he had never considered that a board game could take 12 hours or that yeah. it could cost 150 bucks, right? And and it was clear <laughs> that I just opened up this Pandora's box that... Blew yeah. their mind. Yeah. And so um, I started getting more into, you know, deeper levels of games. And I was always interested by you know, these cool models. And I thought they were awesome that they were painted and people could paint them however they want. But I found the painting to be a little bit intimidating. And so Mm -hmm. finally, what happened was I was in a shop and I said, you know, I've always been interested in these, but I find the painting to be kind of intimidating. And the guy behind the counter was, he he was an employee, but he would basically just paint while he was in the shop. And he kind of had his own little business where he would, uh, you know, paint stuff to tabletop quality and then send it out. And he said, you know what, if you get into one of these games, figure out which game you like, get into it, and I'll teach you how to paint. And so I, I... I said, okay, and, and I, I settled on War Machine. That was my first miniatures game. Um, and I found an aesthetic that I liked, and I found just the right model for me. And I, I got kind of lucky, right, finding, finding Butcher in a box of random models that, you know, I could have gotten anything in that box. Uh, I, Butcher I just, is like Chris's spirit animal. <laughs> <laughs> I just knew I was buying Kator, right? So I didn't, for all I know, like I could have. And he has dogs. What? <laughs> I said, and he has dogs. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I got the, I got into this. I learned how to basically throw on a rough paint job, right? Red and gray. And, and that was it. And, and then I started playing and I, I really liked War Machine. I liked the world. I liked the, I liked the lore, all of that kind of stuff. But I noticed that I always felt behind because it's such a massive game that I felt yeah. as though I could never know all of the rules and I was always going to get gotcha and I felt like no matter how well I play this game, there's always going to be somebody that's been playing it for 10 more years than me and they're going to catch me in a gotcha and that's going to be frustrating. And that's when I found, uh, you know, Guild Ball and some other games, but Guild Ball is obviously the one I attached to. And the thing I loved about that was Guild Ball is a game that 
you can learn the basics in a very short period of time. After talking to somebody for a half an hour, they understand how to jog and how to sprint. They understand how to attack. They understand how to read their defense and armor. And then it was just a matter of, hey, here's the extra models. Here, here's their special abilities. Figure out how to make them synergize. And I felt like I was early enough on that boat to where I didn't feel like I was drowning behind people that had 10 years more experience than me. Yeah, that's probably fair. And so that's kind of how I got into models. One quick aside, though, my younger sister, who she's like she's like the party girl in the family. She's she's the one always going to the club. When she heard that I was thinking about getting into this, she was like, "Chris, please no, please don't, <laughs> don't, don't tell don't tell other people if you do this. Like this is really embarrassing." <laughs> but it's worked out so beautifully because I moved to South Carolina and I have no family with me. I just bring my dog. I, I'm taking a new job. I don't even know any new co- co-workers out here. And the first thing I do is I find a war machine group and Pete's in there and he's the press ganger. And I make a friend right out, right out, right away. And, and the rest is history. So um, it's been a beautiful thing for me to be able to kind of network and make some new friends. Well, the community aspect of that is a big deal, Chris. Um, It's a real big deal. And I think that it's something that I think is a differentiator between board games and miniature games. Um, Because I'm a big board game fan. I love board games. But you don't quite have the same, I don't know, community uh, that you do with miniature games. Yeah, I feel like that the board game community, they're really good at setting up those kind of pockets. Yep. And they're very hesitant to bring a new person into that. Whereas if you are a tabletop gamer, it's kind of like, oh yeah, you play War Machine or yeah, you play Guild Ball or you play Malifaux. It's like, come on in and yeah, get your ass over here. We want to play with you. A funny thing usually is, is that a lot of those tabletop games, people cross over all the time. Yeah. And, And that's the beautiful thing about tabletop is if you're a tabletop player, usually there's a lot of crossover. So here's something that's come up on my show a few times. And Peter and Chris, I didn't realize you guys came from War Machine. And right now, the person who I would argue is the best uh, Malifaux player in the country, uh, Cody Hyatt, who's a buddy of mine, he came from War Machine. But one thing that we have seen happening in the Malifaux communities, we're seeing a pretty strong surge of War Machine players coming to Malifaux. And I'd be really interested to hear from both of you why you think that's happening. I, I, I think I know exactly why it's happening. Good, Chris. <laughs> I, I think that I think that as War Machine realigns and constantly realigns and realigns and realigns and they lose people that are huge parts of their development team um, going over to Crisis Protocol um, and they're looking at starting this new game Warcaster and all of that change going on in there, it seems like there are more things that get broken in that game because there's so many models and it's so hard to manage whether or not everything interacts well that those players that want a tight game where they feel like the best player is going to win is going to say, hey, let's go to this skirmish game where I have more control over the models that I take I'm taking a crew of 10 and mm-hmm. I have a nice tight rule system. I have multiple avenues to win, but not so many avenues 
that I can, it's very realistic that you sit down against somebody when you're playing War Machine or Hordes and they can put a caster on the table that you're like, I've never played against this caster. I have no idea. I'm going to take a different spin on that, Chris. Go ahead. I'm actually, I'm going to say that I got into War Machine when it was first getting off the ground. Uh, I was a pretty pissed off Warhammer 40k player and (laughs) no way. But I switched to War Machine for a while with our group, and it was it was a great game when it first came out. You had your caster, you had maybe one or two infantry blocks, and you had your jacks or your war beasts, and it was amazing. The problem is the game that War Machine has become is very different from what they started out as. And as the game started to expand, the, like I watched one of the finals of their big tournament in Seattle probably over the summer, and I just looked at the board there was two of these gargantuan colossal models on both sides of the board. So each player had two of them and there was a bunch of infantry units sprawled all over the place. And to me, I was like, this just looks like 40 K. And if I want to play the best army game, which for those people that don't know, army is like just massive amount of models, huge tanks, you know, massive beasts. It's like, I'm going to go to games workshop. Mm-hmm. War Machine has turned into 40K in my eyes, and it, it sprawled into this huge, massive army, which is what, not what they were built on. And I think a lot of people are kind of tired of that, and they're moving away from it. And I think Privateer Press sees that because they made a new game. They're like, we need to get in on the skirmishing game. Because as I tell people, I think that the turn-based, I go, you go, I do my whole turn, you do your whole turn, those kind of games are kind of falling by the wayside. And I think a lot of people are starting to float back to these skirmish games where it's alternating activations. And I think that's why you see this huge influx of people from games like war machine and 40 K is kind of weird. And we'll talk about that. I'm sure here in a minute, but you definitely see war machine starting to disperse. I think more than you do the 40 K crowd. Well, I I think it, it just like with 40 K, right. It grows into an uncontrollable beast. And that's what they saw happen. And Privateer Press, a couple years ago, they tried to correct, right? They tried to come out with Company of Iron. And and it seemed like, okay, great. It's going to be War Machine, but in a skirmish game. So it's more manageable. They just chose the wrong side of it, right? Because Company of Iron is all the infantry units. And anybody that plays War Machine and Hordes, they want casters and robots or monsters depending on oh, yeah. you know which side you want to play on but they they want like those to be the skirmish right and they, if if company of iron was just casters and their robots that would have been a lot more successful than choosing the infantry and now what are they doing they're like okay well let's just push it forward we're going to have we're going to go sci-fi like 40k but we're going to make it a skirmish game and we're going to use the best side of our games which is war casters yeah yeah, and there's kind of a there's kind of an interesting kind of um, I, I'm trying to think of the right word for it. Kind of a, a chasm that separates things, which which I I think of it as kind of old mini games and new mini games. And and there's some very obvious things I think that separate it out. Um, one of them is something really stupid, which is all the shit you need's on the card. Yeah, so think about all the games that are out there right now, and like you've got Guild Ball and Malifaux. On one side of that chasm, which is you know everything everything you need's on the card, and then you've got Warm Hordes and Games Workshop on the other side, right? Where you have to have fifteen different books, an app, and 
you know, you got to buy this uh, expansion and so on and so forth to even play the goddamn game. And yep. now you're starting, you're starting to see, and I'll be interested. I know nothing about Warcaster, but you're starting to see Games Workshop go, oh shit, putting everything on the car is kind of smart. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And maybe, maybe, you know, the mo- extra money we're making off books, maybe we would actually have more people playing the game. But I've always considered that a very, a very um, obvious delineation in the, in the progression of, of mini games. Yeah. When I was playing, when I, Chris got me into Guild Ball and you're welcome. Yeah, I, I do want to thank you for that because it's definitely been an amazing trip with Guild Ball. And Chris told me, he's like, oh, yeah, you can just look at this free app. You can buy the cards. They come with the box. Uh, you can go ahead and just the fluff's all online. And I'm looking at him like, I don't have to pay anything. He's like, yeah. no. I was like, that's pretty awesome <laughs> because no. I was used to getting screwed by Games Workshop and Privateer Press for a good, you know, 50 to 100 bucks a year. You were the yeah. wife. Yeah. Definitely. So, yeah, that's I would agree with that, that when I look at a game now, I I look at what do you need to play? Mm-hmm. Because the the I wouldn't say easier, but the easier you make it to get into a game, the the less of a barrier for especially for people that never have done tabletop before. I think the more successful your game will be. Yeah, and it's it's interesting too because I heard and and again I I don't come from the privateer press family so I, I don't know a whole lot about this so you guys I, I trust you to correct me or uh, spank me if I'm wrong here, but for it's my understanding that a good bit of the top talent came over to uh, Atomic Mass and started the Marvel Crisis. I heard that yep. uh, those guys are well respected um, as designers, and you look at what they did with Marvel Crisis Protocol. They, A, went with the modern rule set, which is a very simplified but tight and deep rule set. Then they put out a core box, which I will make an argument is the best value in gaming right now. It's a good box. For the 99 retail, 79 online, you get more plastic in that box than you get anywhere. And it, it, like I, I saw that, and then on top of it, it's a you know superheroes comic books, and I'm like, you know what, I got to try this out. And I was at Nova, had a chance to talk to Will and and meet him, and he kind of walked me through the game a little bit. I'm like, you know what, shit, this is pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> this is pretty clever. And when I found out what you got in the core box and which and uh, what the pricing was, it um, it was interesting to see somebody from the old school Privateer Press make that transition to a new company. Yeah, and the that core box is a great deal. And I think that's kind of where you got to start talking about these games too, is you have to look at your value for your dollar because a gamer is going to get into a game if it is a great deal. Like I wasn't even look, I'm not a big superhero guy. I'm the first to admit it, but I I like the movies and I I like, you know, watching the action and, and I like a good tabletop game. So when this came out, I was on the fence, but all of a sudden I saw the core box. I'm like, Holy crap. That's like a super good buy. Why would I not get that? Well, and they put the, they put like key people in the box. Yeah. Like, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, we're going to give you garbage. No, they're actually <laughs> giving you Captain America and Spider-Man in that box. It's not like an EA sports game, uh, <laughs> you know, for, for the PlayStation where it's like, oh, yeah, and if you want anybody good, you're going to have to buy them. <laughs> like, like that's, that's bullshit. I hate that. Yeah. So I think that's another big thing. And I, I think this is where you start to see the switch over too is when people get tired of just getting dinged for their dollar 
And this is why I stopped playing Warhammer Fantasy in 40K because I was actually a really big Warhammer Fantasy uh, player. I I would travel. I actually made it to the finals for Ard Boys when that was a big tournament in Chicago. And playing that game, I loved it. But the problem was, is one, they killed off the game and turned it into Age of Sigmar, which Sigmar, 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 whatever. And that was just a terrible mistake on their part. But it picked up. They got some money off of it. Great. But the other big part that I hate about Games Workshop is just the money grab, just the blatant, we know you're going to buy this unit, so I'm going to charge the crap out of it. And there I was building this 200 point or 200 point, 200 model list. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those units, you need to buy three boxes. Well, some of those boxes are like 50, 60, 70 bucks. So I'm literally paying out like grand, you know, thousands of dollars to play this game. And in the end, it's kind of like, why am I paying this much? And I stayed in it for as long as I did because I love the stories, but that can only hold people hostage so long. And I, a bunch of people got tired of it. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, Pete, I, and I've, um, I'm not going to say I've come 360 or even 180 at this point. Um, so, <laughs> but I, I, let me, let me walk you through my evolution on, on more on games workshop. So, and, and, and I know at the end here, we'll probably do my rage quit story. So I'm going to skip over that. So I stopped playing 40 yeah, right? We'll get it again. <laughs> and, oh God, I was so mad. I was so mad. At that. I hated that. I hated and, uh, and so I find Guild Ball and I'm like, holy shit, this is awesome. Right. So I played Guild Ball for a while um, here's kind of where I am with, with Games Workshop now. So I feel like I've kind of like I've come to peace a little bit with them. And um, I compliment them a lot more. I used to hate them, rage, rage against them. Here, here's where I am now. One, nobody puts out models of the quality of Games Workshop. Nobody. Chris is going to argue with you about that, and I'm going to let him when you're done. Yeah, like, and, and I'll argue with you on that, Chris, because nobody comes close. Now, I'll tell you, I'm not a fan of the aesthetic now that I've seen other aesthetics and I've gotten exposed outside of that bubble, but the quality of the kit, the quality of like the, just building them and the ease of being put together and the way they hide the seams and just like nobody, nobody's coming close right now. Um, so I, I give him mad credit for that. Pete, you, you, uh, you kind of leaned into it a little bit. The lore fucking fantastic. Oh yeah. The, the, they went out and they got a stable of freelance and in-house writers and they put together just an incredible library. That black library stuff is is legit. And I, I don't understand why other companies, including Weird, has not done that because there's a shit ton of freelance writers out there. Oh, yeah. And that's all the Games Workshop did is found a bunch of kids who, I mean, you talk about Abbott. Who's a big name now? Yeah, Abbott, like, yeah. He was just a kid who wrote. And Games Workshop's <laughs> like, yeah, here's 50 bucks. Go write us a book. Yeah. And, but that Black Library, it, it kept you in the game and it keeps a lot of people in the game. So Games Workshop is what it is, right? It, they're a known quantity. And those of us that don't play Games Workshop now do benefit from the fact that they have, they have had an incredibly successful two years. Um, I give mad credit to the CEO that stepped in. And took yeah, over a year and a half, two years. It was in a it was in a bad way. Well, bad. And I, I will give them that too. They have kind of righted the ship. It, it they have made a lot of good improvements. Not so much that I'm gonna go back to it because 
I'm more of a skirmisher player now. They've developed a little bit of respect for their clientele. Like that, that's the big difference because before that change in CEO, it was, we know we have a captive audience. We don't give a shit about them. We're just going to run up the score as much as we can when it comes to cost and all that kind of stuff. And let me offer, because you guys are some more established gamers, but I'm a, I'm, well, I mean, I'm not that young of a gamer anymore, like, but I still feel like I'm kind of one of these new breed gamers in the sense that I got into gaming around the times that these skirmish games. So I've always, from the time I got into gaming, even though I got into War Machine first, there have always been these skirmish games. There's always been Malifaux. There's always been. So they never had me as a captive audience. And so allow me to counter some of the things you're saying, Craig, and and I'll, I'll make a lot of concessions to you, right? Okay. Um, That's a smart move on your part, Chris. <laughs> Fine, then. I'll make you no this. He's just being nice. I'll make no concessions to you, Craig. So there you go. Let me, let me talk some shit about these models. First of all, I hate that they have so many models that all look like dwarves because they're so so squat and stocky because they want them to obviously they're they're doing that for the builds right so that they hold together if you have thin models that look like a normal person's size then you're looking at a situation where the models potentially break right unless you yeah. really know what you're doing and so what happened is and this goes back to like generations ago is they had to build these squat stocky space marine models and they developed a game with those models where basically all of them started looking the same or at least very similar and i know you can point to differences now and i know that like you know th- there's always exceptions but for the most part they're these s- short stocky space marines that i i don't like the builds i don't think they look realistic at all and because you had to build them short and stocky you have a whole game full of only male characters that all look the same and so to a modern gamer like a modern person that's gotten into miniatures games since all these skirmish games have come out i'm like no i'd rather have the models from corvus belly I'd rather have those infinity models that look like real human beings that look like proportional males and females. I'd rather have um, guild ball models where you have all the different body types and all the different ethnicities of the models. You know, you've never seen models in that, you know, games workshop lineup that look like what would roast. Roast. Um. Uh. Who's the Who's the captain for the Masons? The the newest one. Hammer. Um, oh no, you're talking about Corbelli. Corbelli, right? It's like, yep. you, like you've never seen one that looks like Doctor J <laughs> as a as a model for Games Workshop. And so, I actually think that in the modern world, people are like, no, I like the look, and and I'll agree with you. This is where I'll make the concession, right? I do agree that they understand what they're doing about things like hiding seams and ease of build, right? Like they're, they are getting stuff like that, right? And like the Primaris models for 40K do look more normal as far as human beings um, and more proportional. And and so they're, they're, it's not like they're worthless, but this idea that Games Workshop is just at the top of the heap with their models and better than everyone else, 
I just disagree with that. I think that there are awesome models for weird. There's awesome models for Corvus of Ellie and, and there's awesome models all over the place. I, I think we're looking I, and I probably didn't articulate, my, articulate myself because I agreed with everything you just said, Chris. So uh, the, all the listeners that were really excited Gotta win. About Gotta win. Woo! Out, um, <laughs> uh, are going to be disappointed because I agree with you 100%. And I probably didn't articulate myself well, like from a strictly, not from an aesthetic standpoint, uh, from an aesthetic standpoint, Games Workshop is so far behind the curve that it's a little embarrassing. Um, and what's crazy is that even when they put out the, 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 the long awaited sisters models that everybody's been waiting for and been talking about, they were, they were kind of meh. They showed how far behind the curve they are. And Chris, I'm not going to reiterate it cause you made the points perfectly. I'm talking strictly from a technological standpoint, which is they are producing the best models out there as far as design technically works I don't, i'm not sure I, I i'm having a hard time articulating yeah no i see what you're saying like for example i think that their resins uh, are better than yeah anyone else's and, and their push fit models are, are incredible like i, I like you say yes. these those primary yeah, you say these are, are push models. fit and you're like oh that's going to be garbage and you look at them you're like shit that's pretty good like the sprue the sprue design is incredible the thing i actually like about games yeah. workshop models the most is anybody that has played 40k or fantasy like you were saying, Craig, the kits are amazing. And yep. I really do miss the conversions and the kit bashing you can do with all these different sculpts because you can really create a really unique looking army or really unique looking headquarters, Lord, hero, whatever you want to call it. And you really don't need much more than just the bits and sprues that you have from all your stuff. And the other games, you're right, Craig, you just don't get that. Like you, you look at the table and you can go, you want to know what I know right there, you know, that's Von Schiller. I know right there, that's Jack Daw. It, it's just unmistakable, but 40 K and fantasy were always really awesome because you could customize your models. And when you go to a games workshop tournament and you look at all the different customizing and army building that people do, it really is impressive. Yeah, but they're forced into it to Chris's point, I, I right? They're forced they into it because like Chris said, everybody looks the same, right? So people are forced into that customization. Oh, um, yeah. And, and I'll back up Chris 100%, which is what's great about what we're seeing from Infinity, what we're seeing from Steamforge, what we're seeing from Weird is uh, just a huge variation of models. And not only like, like thematic models, but like you said, body types, backgrounds, ethnicities, everything. They, there's a lot of catching up that needs to happen as far as uh, that's concerned. I do wish, though, and, and this is where I will give some credit to a Games Workshop. I do wish that you could do things with models in these other games, like adding wolf pelts yep. like you do with spa Space Wolves. and it, like That would be cool if you could buy a kit that enabled you to like clip things off of sprues and put them on your you know, brewers for, uh, you know, your, your Gilball models and make them look, you know, like a unique version of the brewers. Like that would be a lot of fun, but yeah, I mean, you know, th there's, we, we've stepped into a new age and, um, yeah, they're the, the technical aspects, they, they've been doing it the longest. They know what they're doing at games workshop, but when it comes to the artistry and the, the, the beauty of, uh, you know, variety, like I think that they're, they're in the past. And so um, that's one thing. And then the other thing that you talked about was the lore. 
And while I agree that they have the most developed lore, right? They they put the most time and effort into it. I do feel like their lore in many ways is truncated by those early yep. decisions to basically create all the same types of models, right? I find I find the lore in uh, in War Machine to be way more compelling just because there's so many female mm-hmm. characters in there. And and anybody that's listened to this knows that I'm no like feminist champion out there, but I would like the variety in life to have the dynamics between, you know, Sorsha and Vlad, for instance. Uh, I, I know that's not a reference you might not get, Craig, but you know, like to 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 have those dynamics of male and female. And I would say that yes, there's a lot of people that they've put together great stories for. Uh, Games Workshop, but when I look at like what Sherwin does, like Sherwin's talked about how Joe Abercrombie is one of his favorite authors that writes all this like yeah. grim dark fantasy novels and all this kind of. Thing. I think that Sherwin's stuff is better than Joe Abercrombie's. I think his stuff is better than his hero, and and, and so you know that there's just yeah, I think that there are other places that you can find amazing lore that is so much more colored and textured and has that variety it's just like the well, comparison let me ask you guys that. this how because we're talking about we have all these games and we're comparing different lores now i mean how important is it for a game to have lore is it is it required do you have to love the lore to love the game or can you just pick up a game just because like man i just really love these models and and I love the way the game plays. So how important do you guys think the lore comes into it when people are deciding which one we're going to play? So here, if you don't mind me going first, Chris, here's how, here's, here's how I would lay it out. Oh, no, 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 get it. So you got kind of, I'm going to split it into two pieces, the, the mechanics and the lore, right? So the theme and the lore, or I'm sorry, the theme and the mechanics. I get a demo game and it's going to be a mixture of the theme and the mechanics that will engage me during the demo game, right? So I need a little bit of both, yeah. right? But what's going to get me to play my first game after that, my second, my third, my fourth, and my fifth game is going to be the mechanics. So I need a game that has good, that's mechanically well-designed to get me to play my fifth game. Now, once you get into the 20th, 30th, and 40th game, that's when I'm going to need a little bit of that theme. That's when I'm going to need a little bit of that lore to get me to play my 50th, 60th, 70th, 70th game. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I, I think that I think that the lore matters very early yeah. and then it holds people late. And so, yeah, I do agree with that because I can't tell you how many times I've seen people that they look at Guild Ball and they're like, oh, yeah, I used to work at this brewery. I'm definitely playing the brewers. I used to be a blacksmith. I'm definitely playing the blacksmiths, right? Like those types of things catch and convert players when there's just even an aesthetic that they really like. And so I think that early on it hooks people. You need a solid rule set to where somebody feels like it's worth learning this game. But yeah, if you want to talk about those people that are passionately going to carry the torch, there will be people that leave just because they're interested in new things. There will be people that leave because there's another 
newer, shinier game that comes out. But those people that feel passionately about it are typically going to be converted to the lore. They're going to be passionate Space Wolves players or or in my case, butchers for Guild Ball. Like I'm never going to sell my butchers. Yeah, so I'm actually going to take this a, a different way a little bit here because I feel like you have to actually have a lore to have a successful game. I I think if you don't have a lore, you're not looking at a tabletop game. I think you're looking at a board game at that point. So the way I'm going to take this is you have to have lore. And then I think it's broken down especially with tabletop games, I feel like it's broken down into two really sections, right? You have people that are driven towards the sci-fi and people that are drawn towards the fantasy. And then you can even throw maybe some historical stuff in there too, if you want, but those are very, very niche. I feel like those people, they have have a hard time finding real good games. But anyways, uh, getting back into it, and I think that's where the division usually happens in tabletop games. What kind of background do you like and what do you really, you know, immerse yourself into? And for me, it's always been fantasy over sci-fi. I, I I played a lot of sci-fi games and I do enjoy some sci-fi stuff. But if you ask me, like, when Nose the Grindstone, which one am I going to pick? It's always going to be a fantasy game. And the games that include a little bit of the technology, the steampunky games, are ones that I really kind of start to gear yep. towards. Just because I do like, you know... the the machines mixed with the fantasy elements. And that's why I I really started getting into Malifaux background really hard. And Craig, I don't know if you've listened to it, but one podcast that I'm just in love with right now is the Breachside Broadcast. Oh, it's amazing. Just the stories that the announcer spins and, you know, the catch lines and it's just, you know, bad things happen. And I'm like, this is just really getting me into the game. And I can really picture when I play the game now, this is what's happening. I can picture my models doing the thing. And that's why I loved Guild Ball, because when you read Sherwin's background yep. in all the stories, he made the character plays really play out in the stories. And that was it's when you see it like that, it's a really beautiful thing. And and I think you need that to be a successful game and, and it's going to draw more people. Yeah, I, I my my only thing. I mean, the Breachside broadcast is literally a guy reading uh, stories that are in all of the books, yep. um, all the supplements and stuff like that. But he he the guy that they've put that they have doing that does a really great job. And and it, and I I agree with you. It makes me want more. And that's where I was just like, I wish they would like. I want I want a novel. I want a Malifaux <laughs> novel um, because. I thought that the the lore of Malifaux, I thought there's funny. There's two things about Malifaux when I first came across it, I thought were gimmicks. The first gimmick was the uh, background. I'm like, okay, that's pretty gimmicky, right? They've got like steampunk and Wild West and uh, fantasy demons. And they're just all kind of like, and, 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 you know, Eastern Asia. It does seem like they're throwing a lot into one sandbox. As for when I first came across, I'm like, all right, that's real gimmicky, right? So I kind of put that to side, but I'm going to explore it a little bit more. The next thing I was like, oh, they use cards instead of dice. That's really you know, a nice gimmick. That's that's cute. Turns out two things I love about the game the most is the card mechanic and the lore that they built around this. And they were similar to Games Workshop where they were a model company first. So they started creating all of these very different, diverse, different models from all these different aesthetics. And then they made a game. Um, but unlike Games Workshop, they made a good game that kind of tied it all together. Then they built the lore on top of that. So I, I give Weird a ton of credit for 
kind of evolving into that and being successful on a mechanic standpoint as well as a lore standpoint because the lore in Malifo is pretty damn good. Well, and I think that the background of that really does a great job because it does seem like a lot of random stuff, but you're like, oh no, it's random stuff is found by Earth people who go through this breach and it's kind of this merge of real life versus dreams and, you know, creatures and fantasy and these empowering stones and it all just blends together just it's a really cool concept that they came up with it in many ways the setting has become as much a character as any of the characters which i really respect that they did that um many people listening to this will remember the tv show buffy the vampire slayer love it and one of the creators, I once listened to an interview, and one of the creators made the comment that they said, you know, you always see these hero stories and they just encounter all the bad guys and the bad guys just flock to them, right? And that's like kind of ridiculous. Like the bad guys would try and avoid those heroes. And so they needed a way to answer, why is it that all this stuff keeps happening here? And they decided to create that you know, portal to hell element of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And that's why everything's popping up right there. And Weird did the exact same thing with the Breach, where they said, how is it that we can get these, you know, Asian monks with these gremlin, you know, cowboys? (laughs) Like, why is all of this stuff happening? And, And yeah, it does, at first glance, it does seem like, you know, people creating it were just like, fuck it, let's just throw this in too. <laughs> but they were smart and they created this this element of the breach that ties, like it, inherently, it ties those things together and it makes the weird normal. And it's almost like, and I don't mean to overly romanticize this, but it's almost like this magic trick, right? Where they've made the absurd normal. It works. and And, and it's this beautiful thing. Yep. And so, yeah, I, I, I really like that. I mean, you know, I, I, I like the card mechanic. Pete wanted to talk a bunch of shit until <laughs> he finally tried it. Um, <laughs> this is, this is true. I, I was like, I was like, man, these fucking cards. It's like, dude, just roll dice. Why do we have cards? This is stupid. You can cheat. You're encouraging cheating. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we, so, I mean, I, I love that, you know, to be honest, the only real big knock that I have about, about Malifaux is some of the models are so ridiculous to put together. <laughs> like where you're having to glue on an individual finger, like get the fuck out of here. <laughs> um, and so I'm like, I, I don't like that, but yeah, when it comes to, I think the models look good. I do want Craig to kind of lean into this transition a little bit. Cause Craig, I, I told you before we started recording that I got, a bunch of people because we had a guy that moved down and got me into it and we got a few guys into it and we're growing the group but that's the biggest complaint i hear about these models it's just like dude what the fuck were these guys thinking well and, and that gets into a point i made earlier which is the elegance of the sprue um which you know it i don't know who's putting the sprues together for weird i love their i love the artists they hire i love the concepts i love the models once they're put together but i also like having to not have three parts to make a head not gluing your fingers together yeah so uh, and it, and that's where you get into the kind of that hats off to games workshop is they have they have solved that rubik's cube where they've been able to now create primaris models and other models now very dynamic you know not stale 2d models that also 
aren't 50 different parts to put so do you guys think that steamforged is kind of onto something where they're just boxing their models already put together it Um, definitely makes it more marketable god god tier you just buy the box and there it is and 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 uh guild ball these days yeah they they did fix their boxes to do that too yeah, the the answer the answer is yes. The old man in me that loves putting together models will miss putting together models, but that is the that's the future. There's no question. The the only thing that I want to do now when it comes to putting together models is anything that has to do with like kit bashing. Yeah. That's that's it. Like if I can do like a cool customization, but like yeah, I want to be able to buy a box and play it immediately. I don't want to think, well shit, I'm going to buy this box and I'm going to plan to put it together over the weekend, but I know that these things are going to come up and then I'm not going to have this put together. So then this unit, I can't play until I have that done. Like it, it's just a pain in the ass. So yeah, yeah I, I, I want to find a way where things can be customizable, but um, I don't want the necessity of building to hinder my ability to play. And, and that, and, and that's important for new players that don't understand tabletop games. I am sure there are people that bought crisis protocol that they thought, Oh, cool. I like Marvel. Here's a Marvel board game. And they didn't realize you're going to have to put this shit together. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So one other thing I want to talk about, and then we'll get into the last part, which we're going to look at, okay, what games are people flocking to right now? So there's kind of this big kind of separation of tabletop that I feel there's the army-based games, and then there's the skirmish-based games. So I just want to get your guys' take real quick on what are the positives and negatives of each one. So why would I want to play an army-based game like 40K, War Machine, uh, you can even go into games like uh, the World War II game, uh, Flames of War. And and what's the benefit of that, those games versus games like Malifaux, Guild Ball, God Tier? So what's the positives and negatives of each type of game? So I'll take the harder argument. So what's good about the bigger games? Here's what I miss from 40K and um, kind of that bigger game is there is something really like after all of the thousands of dollars are spent, all the thousands of hours spent um, painting. There's something really effing cool about laying down 75 models on one side of the table and 75 models on the other side of the table and just beating the hell out of each other. So I would say what's attractive to the bigger games is kind of the epic nature of, of those that scenario there. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, it's a much totally easier agree argument on the other side, Chris. So what, what, I'll let you make the skirmish argument. Well, well, and just to add a little bit to what you said there, I can't tell you how many times I'm setting up for a big battle in, you know, uh, Song of Ice and Fire, for instance. Yep. And I just hear that music in the back of my head. Like I mean, like like you can you can feel it. It is more epic. As far as skirmish games go, in our more busy modern lives that we have, most people don't have the time to put all of that together to paint those 70-something models and to take on a game that's going to take hours and hours. Mm -hmm. They want a skirmish game that they can fit on their normal size uh, table that they didn't specifically buy a 4x6 table for 
um, in their house. They want a game that it, it's just more practical. It's just more real to life for the lives that we live in a modern, busy world. And, you know, you don't want to have to, you know, get it's nice to just be able to say, here's my six Guild Ball models. Here's my 10 Malifaux models. And I know I can play and I can have a quick game that's fun. I didn't spend a whole bunch of time painting and setting up and getting excited for this game and then getting blown off the table top of turn two. Um, there's there's just more fun to be had. Well, see, and I, I would argue against that a little bit too, though. Like, I understand the setup and, you know, the preparing for the army battles is tough, right? Because it's a lot of time. But I, I do miss those moments, and everybody has one, right? When it's like everything's kind of going against you, and then there's kind of like this charge of the light brigade moment, right? Where you're just kind of like, man, things are looking down, but I have this little IG guy, this little guardsman with his LAS pistol. He's going to get the flashlight yep. on and boom, he blows something up. Or there's been moments where you have just this line of guns and somebody's coming in to charge at you and you just mow them down right in front of you. And it, there's just a lot of really cool cinematic moments that you have with those bigger skirmish games that you Craig hit it right on the nose. It's just cool, man. And you're just chucking a ton of dice. And man, I tell you, I have these cups full of dice I'm looking at right now that I haven't used in years. Cause I haven't played yeah. war machine or, and 40 K and fantasy in years. So those dice just aren't being used anymore, but it's a lot of fun to do it. Well, and that's part of what's awesome about a throw throw dice game. What you know, games that I that have less of what I talk about at Malfo, where that you have that player agency. There's something cool about that. Like all I got to do is roll three sixes, and then you do, and that's awesome. <laughs> and you, you know, the guardsman does it, and Gandalf comes over the mountain with the you know the army and saves Minas Tirith. But yeah, no, I agree. I agree. So yeah, I think I think that, but I think that what we what we've said here kind of encapsulates a lot of the feelings that people have about those different elements of game systems. Like that is one line that you can draw between two different types of games. Yep. So I think the big thing that people start to figure out is you kind of start getting into, if you're playing the big war games, you, a lot of people like to get competitive with their games. And I think a lot of times games like 40 K and war machine and, I think I think it's tough to be competitive with those games because there is such a large large variance. Yep. And you're going to start seeing competitive play that there's very few armies or factions that start to, you know, rise to the top. And you see those played all the time because they're either more reliable, maybe they have something that's very overpowered and they just rise to the top and are played competitively. And if you want to be competitive in that system, you have to play those. Otherwise, you're just going to get rolled. Well, it comes down to whether uh, whether the best player wins the match or the person with the most meta knowledge wins the match. And then the third tier is, you know, has the most money. Um, I was just going to say pay to play um, where you don't see that with gold ball. Pay, pay to play is like a non-starter for me. Like if, if it's a pay to play yeah. game, I'm out. I don't, I don't want to have to be opening a shit ton of blisters slash booster packs or well, let me, any so, of that kind of stuff. And then leaning into the skirmisher base of this, you guys have already talked about it's nice to carry the small model count around. So what are some of the other perks of being a skirmish gamer as opposed to that cinematic 
army gamer. Well, it's more the modern rule set too. So it's not just, I think comes what comes with skirmish games is what I consider a modern rule set. And part of what's a modern rule set is what uh, Chris already alluded to already talked about. It was the, uh, uh, not the you go, I go, which is uh, alternating activations. Any game coming out now that does not have some degree of alternating activations is antiquated. And the reason that's antiquated and what you get from skirmish games is constant engagement, which is another huge thing in Malifaux and Guild Ball is you're, there's no downtime. When it's your opponent's turn and he's activating a model, you're engaged the entire time. And that's true of Malifaux and Guild Ball. Yep. And I consider that part of the modern rule set. And the weird one in this example, and we'll... Is yeah, well, I want to take an aside on this because, and ask you, you about your opinion, Craig, because Infinity is, I think, very clearly in a skirmish game mold, but the time it takes for setup, setting up all that terrain, it does make it a little, bit, a little bit more epic. Um, it's not a game where everything's on the card. The rule, the rule set is very extensive beyond just what's on a model's card. And then... It is kind of a you go, I go, but they have an interesting mechanic with the, you know, uh, AROs that enable somebody to have some interaction back. Like, Infinity is kind of in this other bubble, and I just kind of want your thoughts on some of those things. So I'm, I'm going to piss some people off. Um <laughs> Yeah, because we've never done that here. Yeah, Infinity Infinity is antiquated, and it, it has they have not been able to make the decision. So they are they look like a you nail a lot of key points. They look like a skirmish game, but they still have the old GW model, which is there's fucking rules everywhere and three FAQs, and I've got to have you know five different PDFs on my iPad to in order to figure out whether you know this gun does that. They fell into a, an awful trap of we are going to simulate reality on the table. And that's a huge trap because and, and the, the counterpoint to uh, Infinity right now, I think, is Marvel Crisis Protocol. And I give the guys that, uh, that designed that mad credit because they stopped saying we're going to simulate. We're not going to simulate shit. What we're going to do is create an interesting game with interesting mechanics that feels like superheroes. And so it feels yeah, like a comic book. Bam, right, yeah. ow, yeah. You're at the bottom of a building, and the next per the person you're swinging at is at the top of a four-story building. Well, we're going to measure everything from top down. We're not even going to care about height, and you can punch the shit out of them. <laughs> and like, like an Infinity player is like, what the hell? There's no silhouettes, and I don't have to roll these three <laughs> dice. This mod modified by sevens. And the, <laughs> the Marvel guy goes, well, while you're thinking about that, we played two more games of Marvel Crisis Protocol, and we had a lot of fun. Um, so I'll be very interested to see what the next iteration is, because I've got some of my buddies that love, inf that love Infinity, and they've heard me bitch about it before, that have said they're very hopeful about this beginner's version that's coming out um i'll be very interested to see whether they truly make the full step into what i consider a modern rule set because if you if you make me split between two camps infinities with gw they're not with steam forge and weird yeah and I, I think that's something good and bad for for infinity is they are very rules intensive so there are a lot of people that they flock to it because they're like, oh, yeah, I love the technicality and I love the interactions I can have. 
And that's fine, but you have to realize that's a huge barrier for people huge to play. Barrier. And yeah. we had we had one of the best war cores, I think, in the country with with Brian. You remember him, uh, Chris? Brian, yeah, Brian. Bryant was an incredibly gifted teacher of games, and he he got a bunch of people into the game, and it's just one of those things where it's just so intensive that even him drawing people in wasn't enough to kind of keep it glued together. And even clay clay's a good player and he, he goes to national tournaments and ranks pretty well in them, but he just, he has a tough time getting a game just because that barrier to entry is so high. And he even told me, he's like, Oh yeah, I think they're really going to try to streamline a lot of this to try and bring more people in to try and main, you know, just trying to get it where you can have all levels of player, not just the high level player. And and it would be a great thing if they could do that because I'll tell you what, that story that they have is one of the better ones. Yeah, it's a cool uh, setting. Like, like, it's a super cool setting. Th- that story of, you know, Aleph and, and all of the elements that go into that is better than, like, the series The Expanse that's on... Amazon. Careful now. Careful now. Really, really think about like, think about those, those elements because of the different cultures and factions, it's able to go so much deeper and it pulls out a lot of the best things in the expanse and a lot of the best things, obviously in altered carbon. Um, Yeah. It's a a better, strong word though, Chris. It's a very (laughs) strong story. And, and I'll I'll tell you this. I just got done reading the fir- Leviathan Wakes from the Expanse. So good. Okay, that that story, in my opinion, just that one. Right. I haven't read the other books later. I haven't seen the deeper levels of the Expanse um, series. Right. But just that starting point, I feel like is more flat than what we see in some of these other stories and definitely what we see with infinity like infinity is has depth and layers immediately in that story you have you have read as much of him as you need to read so put put him down you've read his book now go watch it now go watch the tv series okay because the tv the tv series does a much better job with the material after leviathan wakes so bringing this all back together with you guys kind of talking about how these different stories really kind of build it up. And I'm going to make that argument for the skirmisher game as well, that to me, when I started playing the skirmishing games like Guild Ball and Malifaux, it really threw me back that each model had either a name or a type, right? Like I was, I was used to, Oh, here's Johnny space Marine. And here's, you know, Mr. Eldar. And I'm like, yeah, they die. So what? But man, when you play these skirmish games, you really get in love with these characters. Like I've been playing a lot of, you know, um, Levy's crew, and I'm really starting to love the interactions I'm having with like Marlena, and I'm having loving interactions with obviously Rusty Alice, and yep. I, got, I got my Necropunks <laughs> jumping all over the place, and I'm just like, I'm like, yeah, man, Rusty's just tanking it on the chin and you're just gonna die and i'm just i'm loving it so i think that's a really strong argument for the skirmishing game i i agree and and, and an argument for malifo too because the one thing that those guys have nailed uh, and they even got better at it with this new third edition is you've got what levy the levy looks like the levy crew looks like and then they play like that so like they feel like they look and they play the way they look and it's something that um that you 
you lose the tightness of the rule set. So one thing that's great about Guild Ball is how tight the rule set is, but there's a little kind of samey feeling that happens if you've played Guild Ball enough that yeah. you don't get with Malifaux. It, yeah. I think that's the nature of the goal scoring versus the objectives, though. Well, oh, yeah. I also think that since the system is so clean, and I think that since the rules do kind of like fit tightly together with Guild Ball, and this is something that you alluded to, Craig, earlier, but I'm going to really kind of point out, is that Guild Ball is almost solved in a lot of instances. Like, there's a lot of times where Chris is going to attack me with, let's just say, Filet. And there is a response where it's like, yes, you should counterattack this because the math is on your side or no, you shouldn't counterattack it because the math is not on your side. And that's designed from the playbook feature where it's like you have to pick something in this playbook and it's set depending on how many successes you have. And I think that's the big difference is that when you look at Guild Ball, there's very set responses where it's like, yes, you should have counterattacked there that lost you the game. Or you should have gone for this goal run. The math was in your odds. Whereas definitely in Malifaux, there's so much openness to what you can do just with the different triggers and reactions and order of activation that it, it is a lot more loose. And that kind of fits the Wild West theme, I feel like, a lot. You you perfectly perfectly verbalized, Pete, why I left Guild Ball and went to Malifaux. Is Guild Ball is solvable, which is a both why I left it and why I love it. <laughs> and Malifaux is a little dirtier, a little hazier and not quite as tight. And I have more fun in that world. There is a lot of fun in those interactions for sure. So let's, uh, you said, and we'll, we'll, you'll, you'll see where I'm going with this very shortly, but you said that you had eight skirmish or, or tabletop games that are on your shelves right now. So what are those eight? So the ones that I played, uh, I played 40K. I dabbled in fantasy. I played Guild Ball. I goofed around with Infinity. So that's at four. Malifaux, five. Crisis Protocol, six. That's probably the only ones I gave a really serious shot at. So I lied. It was six, okay. not eight. Okay. So so of of those games, right? Like the, the whole point of this podcast is to kind of give people a sampling of where games are at and, and all of that kind of stuff. What is the game that if somebody is thinking about getting into tabletop games for the first time, what is the game that you think is the ideal starter game for somebody that's brand new to tabletop? Considering Crisis all Protocol. the elements. Okay, Crisis Protocol. Yep, Marvel Crisis Protocol. I think that that is the easiest point of entry financially from a rule set standpoint, from an approachability aesthetically, um, I give those guys at Atomic Mass a, a ton of credit. I think that is the perfect um, entry-level game. The gamer out there that is a little sick and tired of whatever they're playing right now, come play Malifaux. Okay. And it, it, let me ask you this. Is there a more obscure game that has always kind of tickled your interest, but you've never really been able to get into it. Maybe somebody hasn't been in your area that can give you a demo on it. Like a game that just, that's always been floating in the back of your mind, man, I'd, I'd like to try that. I think that game could actually be pretty cool. No, but I will tell you the new steam forge game has got my attention. God. Um, you mean. Yeah, yeah, they, um, there's, 
one of the benefits, and you guys can appreciate this too, one of the benefits of doing a podcast is you get to talk to a ton of people from all over the place, right? So I have mm-hmm. guests from all over the world on my show. And I, and over time, after you know, I do my show is a weekly show, I've, I've talked about games to a lot of different people. And, and through that process, you, you learn that kind of that filter uh, that you talked about, um, Chris, where you, you can kind of tell who knows what the fuck they're talking about and who is kind of full of it. And there are certain people that I can, that I have a lot of respect for that when they tell me a game is good, that's all I need to know. And there's like four people. And I will tell you that that game has gotten the, the golden seal from more of those people than I think I've seen any other game out there in in recent times. And Pete and you and I talked about it before that we started recording. I just don't have time to play it. I don't have time to pick it up. People interested in it, we do have an episode, probably about three episodes ago, where we talked with Jamie Perkins, who's one of the lead developers on it. So give that a listen if you're on the fence. You got Jamie on the show? Look at you. We've had Jamie on the show multiple times, sir. Jamie and the Rage Quit Wire, pretty close. He hasn't blocked us on Facebook yet. That's impressive. (laughs) Yeah. That guy comes to America and you buy him barbecue one time and then you got a buddy for life. right (laughs) he's a good guy i'm a fan of him oh yeah he's a super cool guy okay so yeah i agree with like god tier is one that i i haven't and and everyone knows that's been listening recently like i've kind of been on this board game kick a little bit and i haven't put the time into learning god tier but god tier is one that i'm super excited about i really want to get into god tier and from everything that i understand about it like it's gonna it's gonna fit very well with me um, as yeah. my as as my type of play style, I haven't really gotten into Marvel Crisis Protocol, despite everybody in our crew here playing Marvel Crisis Protocol. And I mean, maybe I'm just missing out, or maybe I just haven't had the right button push that has sparked my interest. Um, I think I'm kind of waiting for more models to come out and more that I really want to play. Yeah, it, it's not it's not a, it's not your main game. It's a great second game. Okay. Uh, yeah, so you're fine, and take your time with it. You know, it's an interesting hybrid game, which I'd be interested, Chris, whether you have played with. And when I say a hybrid game, that's kind of a miniature game, but kind of a board game, which God Tier kind of falls into that a little bit, and so does uh, Shadespire. But one of the better ones that I've come across, and I don't know if you guys played it, is did you guys play the uh, Batman game yet? Oh, the Night Models one? No, not the Night Models one. Uh, so on Kickstarter, uh, there was a um, uh, a Batman board game with miniatures. Is this the one that was based on the animated series? The Kickstarter just ended? Nope, that's a new one. Okay. Um, and uh, Pete, I'll send you the stuff so you can put it in the show notes what it was. Cool. Uh, and I can't, and it's like, it's, a, it's on the other part of the room where I'd look it up. Phenomenal game. And it's, it, it's, it's a board game, but it's a miniature game. And it's a really nice hybrid. And everything you're talking about, Chris, is I'm going to have to send you the info on this game because that could scratch an itch for you because it's a little bit of both. So let me ask you guys this because... We're kind of talking about hybrids now, and we're recommending stuff for gamers. There are hybrid games where they fit the tabletop realm, but they also fit a little bit of board game, or they also fit a little bit of something else. And when I think of that, I'm looking at games like X-Wing. There's a new Street Fighter game coming out. There's Hero Clicks. I'm, I'm curious to see what you guys think about those few games I listed right there. Maybe not the Street Fighter game because it's not out yet. But pre-built models that you just you buy, whether it's random or not, and then you play, whether it's the X-Wing model or it's the Heroclix model. What do you guys think about those two games specifically? I'm against Heroclix. Okay, why do you not like Heroclix? (laughs) 
I, I, it goes back to like the opening boosters thing, yeah. right? Like, it, if you're, yeah, if you're gonna play a game, you want like you want to be able to play the models that you're excited to play. As a Magic player, it is way more addicting to crack those packs than it is to buy the oh. model you need. It's well, so. There's a we booster. were all billionaires. A, we could do that. Three booster that just came out for Magic, and me and Nick have been like cracking these packs because they're just some really cool cards in there. And I think that's why people like Hero Clicks. That whole crack a pack feel. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I'm just that's just not for me, right? I want to <laughs> be able to, I want to be able to know that what I'm what I'm paying for is something that I'm going to want to use. I very much use the the movie calculator for how I invest in games, meaning that, you know, I need to play basically a game for every dollar amount that I would spend in a movie. So if I'm, if I'm putting 70 bucks into a box of models, I need to be thinking, am I going to play this, you know, seven times? So, um, yeah, the hero clicks, uh, Magic the Gathering model does nothing for me, so I, I, I'm with Chris on that completely. So you're wrong, Pete. In your face, I didn't. Oh, I didn't. I didn't say I liked it. I'm just asking a question. <laughs> but but like X-wing isn't like that though. No, X-wing um, so is. X-wing, I agree. you know, you know what you're going to buy. The problem with X-wing is if you want to play competitively, you got to buy everything. Buy, yeah, you got to buy every box that comes out, even though you'll never put the model on the table because you need that particular pilot or you know or uh, equipment or whatever. That's so I think like games like X Wing and Armada are phenomenal games for just you and your buddy in your basement playing. Right. You and, don't give a shit. You're not and keeping add track of the to this, Craig. Um, I would imagine that's the same feeling that you have toward games like um, Underworlds, where you yeah. had to buy every fucking box to get those oh, damn cards. Dude. To be fair, I believe, and listeners can correct me if I'm wrong, I believe with the second edition of X-Wing and the new edition of Underworlds, I think they're actually leaning a little bit away from that collecting card part of it Good. and just focusing on the flying and the fighting part of it. Yeah, thank goodness, because that element sucks. And the people that do that kind of stuff are typically, whether it's Game Workshop, Fantasy Flight, there are certain companies that are those closed source. We're going to hold people by the balls and make them yep. spend money. Like if you want a thought process of which games I'm going to get into, one of the first questions I would ask is, is there a free app? Is yep. this an Orson's open source game where the players are able to have some ownership over it and create apps or whatever it might be where people have free use of this game and if not fuck them yeah, no, that's a good first question that's a good first question and it um yeah i mean it's it's tough because like i i get the chase like the thing that pissed me off about shadespire is um shadespire i don't consider a hybrid i think that is a collectible card game that has tokens that are very elaborate and expensive Fair. so like yeah, like Shadespire was like when the first time people there was a lot of guys that were trying to get me into Shadespire, read the rules, uh, bought the first uh, opening pack for it, and it was you know play the rule set a little bit, and then you know did the basement play against myself, and I'm like, this is just this is a card game. This is not a miniatures game. This is a card game. Whereas you know the other games you mentioned, Pete, I think are are more of the hybrids. So let me ask you guys this because there's something else that I think we need to take into account with. Because we'll look at what we recommend, kind of like what Chris was doing for new and, and older players. But I, I 
one thing I didn't think about until we started talking about Infinity and even with Malifaux, Craig, is how important or how hindering can it be to have a detailed terrain system? Because Malifaux is kind of like Infinity where the terrain can be very intense and there needs to be a good amount of it. Otherwise, the game doesn't work as intended. It's a barrier. It's a barrier. I don't think that Malifaux is nearly as stupid about terrain um, mechanically as Infinity is. But you do still need to have a board that has 30% of it taken up by terrain, and that's a barrier. And uh, Jesus, I'm freaking Atomic Mass Games owes me some money because I keep blowing smoke up their ass. That's where the <laughs> core box of that game gets a ton of credit because, yeah. you know, they put the terrain in there. And uh, I think that we should see some more companies really put together a you're going to get everything you need in the box. I give Steamforge credit when they start putting goals. And, and a piece of terrain, you know. And I will say, if you're into terrain and other things, one of our friends of the show, Nick, he actually started an Etsy shop, and it's BardingTokens.com, where he actually is starting to print terrain, and he actually just printed Doctor Strange. He he put together that whole building, and I was like, dude, this is really cool because he has a 3D printer. And I think if you get people like that that really get into the terrain, I think yeah. if you love terrain. I mean, he just bought like a carousel that we're going to use for infinity. We got like a stagecoach, and the terrain really can make a game come alive. And I think that's a drawing point to some of these games like infinity and Malifaux that I was missing when I played guild ball. Cause guild ball, they had cool terrain, but it was actually hindering to use it because the 2d terrain made the game cleaner. Yeah. It, um, th- th- I mean, you can't beat, let's be honest, you can't beat the uh, neck turning reaction you get from a beautiful table with beautiful terrain and fully painted models. There's just nothing that beats it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, and, and that's something that I think is very wise that the companies have done is when you do have a, a game that kind of requires more of that terrain and it looks like a more complete setup and it looks almost a little bit more, especially when done well, like a, a diorama, like a, a, almost a living diorama as you move models around the board. It is something that is more pleasing to attract players. And so, uh, yeah, I, I would, I would still rather have those elements. I mean, maybe it's not 30%, but um, enough to wear players are encouraged to play with some really cool terrain. Um, I, I think yeah, I love it too, but P- I think Pete makes a good point, which is um, I think it is a barrier. Um, but you know, I don't think it's any more, more of a barrier than you have to have clippers and plastic glue and put the goddamn things together. Well, th- I think that's, that's the important part of the community, right? Is that you have a community that has that stuff available. And when I was a pundit and when I was, you know, a press ganger, I always made sure that I, I was available as much as possible because I knew I had the bags, I had the terrain, I had the boards. And that way, if somebody wanted a game, we could get them a game or leave the stuff at the store with a store owner that you trust. That way they can have it available for people that want to play the game. Because at the end of the day, you need to have and encourage people. If you want an intense board with a lot of terrain, you need to encourage people to make that available for for different groups. Otherwise your game's not going to grow. No. Yeah. 
And, and I would say that on your gaming day when you're at the shop, put that table right up front yep. and center. Put the people that are going to be patient with observers and patient with new players on that table because those are the ones where people are going to come up and ask yep. questions. And so you want you want people that are going to give patient responses. You want people that are going to have, you know, beautiful painted models on that table. And I mean, you know, you don't have to make it a, make it a thing, but I mean, like be conscious of that. Like it's good. It's good marketing. It's good branding for what you're trying to build in your area. So all this being said, let's kind of start looking at some recommendations here for different people that are looking at tabletop gaming. And we'll start kind of like at the bottom. And we already mentioned this a little bit with Craig's response, but we'll expand on this too, Chris. So brand new player likes the look of models is trying to figure out a game to get into. Maybe they played a little bit, maybe they played none, but what's a good first game you think people should look at investing in if they're looking at all these tabletop games? I'm going to first ask a quick question of them. And it's a question I was asked very early on. And that was, do you like monsters or robots? (laughs) Um, and that's going to really guide me as far as where I want to go, whether or not they're going to be more of a fantasy or sci-fi person. And then I'm going to guide them in that direction. I obviously am not a big crisis protocol player. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I don't disagree with everything that Craig has said. And I think that that's a, a reasonable choice. Um, but based on the ones that I know, I think that I would probably uh, lean them toward Guild Ball. Probably there, there, there's enough variety in factions that are relatable to people you're going to find people that work in a kitchen that want to be the chefs. You're going to find people that, you know, do all sorts of different labors and walks of life that are going to be attracted to different factions in that. And then it's an easy rule set to learn. So if I'm going to kind of lean away, like lean towards something where it's, Hey, brand new person, kind of the same thing, get a vibe of what they like. But I think the big one right now is if it's somebody who loves models, I think you can kind of like show them some stuff and kind of steer them in a direction. But generally speaking, I think most people, Crisis Protocol is probably going to be the one to go to just because there's so much just known, just loving that storyline of just, this is the superhero. I can play the Hulk and I can smash stuff. I can play, you know, Dr. Strange. I can play, you know, Spider-Man, you know, your friendly neighborhood, Spider-Man, just whatever. And I'm sure if they, if, and when they start introducing like X-Men, the thing's going to blow up even more. Yeah. And it's just one of those, and you know, they're going to time that with some movies. You, yeah, you just know it. Definitely. That's a smart way to do it, right? Yeah, of course. And and I think that's probably where most people will go. Obviously, if they're kind of like me and it's like, yeah, I like superheroes, but it's not kind of my jazz. I like more fantasy stuff. Then maybe you steer them towards like God tier because mm-hmm. God tier is kind of like Guild Ball where it's it's easy to learn, but maybe a little more difficult to master the, you know, small interactions you have. Guild Ball is easy for new players, but I also feel like the openness of Guild Ball makes it challenging. And just telling yeah. somebody, like, you can go anywhere on the board. It's like, well, where should I go? It's like, well, you can do anything. And that's very overwhelming. Whereas God Tier, there's a hex system and there's very direct goals that you want to achieve. And I would probably offer one of those two, either God Tier or Crisis Protocol is what I'd probably recommend to people. And 
and we haven't really gotten into God tier yet, like you and me, Pete, but I have no doubt that my recommendation is going to mirror that once I know more about God tier, because yeah. it is, it is so tight. And, um, from what I understand about it, like it, it's going to be so easy to just be like, dude, buy this box, buy one other box, any, any characters you like that look cool to you. And there you go. You can play a full game. I think another selling point for that too, Chris, is this, even if you, so let's just say you hate this game and you never want to play it again. It's like, do you like Dungeons and Dragons or do you like Pathfinder? Because these would be awesome Pathfinder models. That's a good point. That's a really good point. Well, I actually, that kind of brings up, you bring up the Pathfinder thing. I'd be curious to know what you guys are thinking. I mean, it seems like RPGs have gotten real popular lately. And I, I think yeah, Stranger Things kicked it off and then Critical Role has just made it explode. Where do you, so we talk about the golden age of miniature games and, 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 uh, board games where do you guys think rpgs are uh, i'm not really an rpg guy i mean the closest thing that i get to with that is playing kingdom death and kingdom death isn't exactly an rpg i think that rpg is kind of tough to gauge just because a lot of people do that at home so mm-hmm. i think it's one of those things where it's tough because you want to know what if you don't you know jive with certain people or if you're new to an area it's hard to get into a group a lot of times and I think that's a lot of times what hinders kind of the RPG process. Yeah. But I, I think there's a ton of people that own the books. They love the stories. They'll build characters. And eventually they'll f- probably find a group to get into. And it's it's one it's a really cool system because you can really get some interesting interactions and you can, you know, get models. I will say, and Craig, you can kind of lean into this too, but how how much i love a group that does rpg i think depends on how much they use the board and how much they use models and actually terrain not necessarily to play out the whole scenario but at least to kind of maneuver and i feel better about building a character rpg wise when i also have a model that i painted up to represent that character yeah, that helps. Definitely. I, um, I'm definitely more, and this is my age showing more theater of the mind, old school RPG guy. But I mean, the reality is, is with the tools that are out there right now, both from a physical tools with white, you know, wipe erase mats, which yeah. is, you yeah. know, like it sounds like something we take for granted now, but I'm telling you, it was a revolution, uh, in RPGs. Oh, back in the day for sure. Yeah. And, you know, and, and miniatures that are out there now, not even getting into, you know, tabletop simulator and, uh, roll 20 and stuff like that. It's a whole new thing, but it, it's funny what you said, Pete, like we talk about barriers. There is no, no taller wall than an RPG wall um, for all the things that you just listed there to the point where like my patience is not enough to jump it. So (laughs) I always, I always would just, you know, start my own. I'd find a bunch of dummies that would play with me and I would run the game because I didn't have the patience to to jump the wall. Plus the great thing about hero quest is the dice. So the, the thing that I look at with RPGs and this is from like an outside perspective looking in is I kind of feel like RPGs, the nature of them are such that if you have a group of friends where you guys have good synergy, you're going to have a blast with RPGs no matter whether the RPGs are good or not. Um, And I also feel like RPGs are going to be seeing a bump because now, I mean, all over TV, you see, you know, Joe Manganiello doing a righteous work of like holding the banner for nerds. Um, because, because he, he breaks, he breaks the stereotype, right? He's a legit 
Dungeons and Dragons nerd, but he's <laughs> built like a Greek god. And girls yeah, swoon over him. And he's got hot ass Sophia Vargara that he's married to. And, you know, and, and so now he's doing this thing where he's bringing yeah, in. He, Chris, are you, are you, do you have pants on right now? Um, <laughs> barely. I'm wearing shorts. Um, <laughs> but, but I mean, like he's doing, he, I mean, just like, he's doing just it right. Just like this yeah. line, just like this line where when the superhero movies took off, it pushed tabletop games forward. Yep. I think that we're seeing something similar where like now uh, RPGs have like this champion in the public yep. eye. And that's, a, you know, maybe he's not a household name, but he's close to it. You know, he's, he's in movies every year and people recognize who he is and um, they have this champion. And I think that that's going to, that's going to push RPGs forward. And then it's just a matter of, like you said, whether you have to create your own group because, you're not willing to, you know, cross that line into somebody else's or, you know, you're finding a group that just works well for you. You're, you're going to have a fun time with RPGs if you have the right group. And I think that this is, and bringing it back to tabletop, that's one of the big problems with, I feel like, RPGs is finding a group that works because people don't always blend and maybe yeah. they don't have a spot open. And I think this is why tabletop games are great is because we we bring in anybody. Like, even if you're the, you know biggest of the basement trolls even if you know you don't shower regularly hey no 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 man no bring it in the people that don't shower (laughs) no what i'm saying is you bring them in give them a little hygiene tip and be like listen man i'm just spraying them with febreze against their will (laughs) let's bring in but we gotta kind of clean up some things i think tabletop just lysol them down plus you know they're on the other side of the table just you know hearty handshake okay (laughs) <laughs> so I'm going to play host for a second and ask you a question that um, I want to know the answer to. And you, I think you've answered it in little pieces throughout the whole thing. But I, what set the hook for you on Malifaux? Like, when did, when did that, when did that get, when did you get reeled in? Um, so it's funny. So it all, it all hinges around one of our new friends, Scott. And he, he, man, it was slick how he did it. So <laughs> I kind of feel like I need a therapist or something with, you know, how I got played a little bit here, but he actually did the same thing I do. He has several games and he started playing a song of ice and fire with us. And we even got him a little bit into guild ball. And I'm always of the opinion that, you know, if I like you, I'll play any game with you. I don't care what it is. So he asked me, he's like, Oh yeah, you know, I, I'm, I love Malifaux. I gave Chris a demo. I was like, well, you know what? The models look kind of cool. Let me get a demo. And the first game I played, it was okay. You know, I was like, all right, yeah, I'm flipping cards. And and I, I didn't really think too much of it after that. And then he wanted to get a second game in. And I started picking models that I was like, okay, I don't like these kind of, you know, 10 Thunders. They're, you know, I'm not a big Bushido guy. And Chris knows that. Man, but- you are such a hater on Bushido. <laughs> Bushido is going to make a comeback. But anyways... And then I ended up playing, and I shouldn't have done it. I played the Bayou, and I played that shit-eating grin goblin. I can't, I don't know his name off the top of my head. Um, but anyways, I played him and his crew, and it was a friggin' blast. I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was summoning goblins. You know, I had this big Lemmy-looking guy. You know, oh, Somer, you know, you're playing Somer. Yeah, I was, yeah. So I was playing him. And there were just so many, the rules were kind of cheeky. They were named with the kind of feel of the rule, which playing Guild Ball I loved. 
And there were some really explosive moments where I was just like beating the crap out of a couple models. And I, I, I think that's the game that did it. And I was a big orc and goblin guy in fantasy right. and 40 K. So that gave me a lot of that feel and that started dragging the feels out. And I, and then damn it, I started looking at models and I started listening to your podcast and the actual videos that you put out for third edition. And I was just like, this is a pretty cool fucking game. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to get into it. And now I'm also a really competitive player. Um, I like going to national tournaments. I like doing well. So the fact that this is a game I can grow into and really get competitive with also scratch an itch that Guild Ball's kind of left because the scene's down. So yeah, yeah that's kind of where I fell into it. And I, it's it's a good game. And I'm glad that Scott came along and got us into it. And it, are, do you still hate it, Chris? Because the last podcast I heard you talking about it, you were an angry, angry boy. Well, yeah, but I mean, that's just normal. That's just part for the <laughs> course. <laughs> So, um, no, I don't hate it. Uh, I would be more on par with Pete if I was making a little bit more time. Like I said, I've just kind of been in a weird place where I've been like torn in a few different directions. Um, but I mean, I've had Malifaux models for years. Like I didn't really know how to play it. And so that's why I never really pushed Pete on it. Um, otherwise I think Pete and I would have been into it a lot sooner. Well, yeah, you guys something else off this chris something else because i have a son that's 11 years old what is the tabletop game and it might be malifaux it might not but what's the tabletop game that you guys feel would be good for that kind of i feel like that you don't start playing tabletop games till you get in your teens yeah so just because of the complexity of a lot of it but if you have somebody in their tweens to, you know, late teens, what do you think is one of the better games for that age group? Just kind of like middle school to high school range. X-Wing. You yeah, think that's not a bad call. I think X-Wing's, I think X-Wing's good. I think, I think I would kind of give you the uh, no answer uh, that Chris has been giving you, which is, you know, what do they like? Yeah. Um, I, I think, I think, I think right now, and this gets t- ties into the original premise of uh, the episode, which is we're in a golden age, right? So you can now go to your 11 year old Pete and say like, like, what do you think is cool? What kind of movies do you like? And pretty much whatever his answer is, there's going to be a game out there. That's pretty decent that you can say, Hey, this is kind of like that and, and show it to him. One of our good friends of the show, Evan, his daughter will kick your ass in some tabletop games. Dude, well, Maya will beast. Maya will make a grown man cry, and it is hilarious. Yeah, I've got a six year old daughter, and she's already smarter than me. So <laughs> I, I'm I'm going to tell Ty that he needs to get into Bushido. F that. Just out of spite. Nope. Hey, I, real quick, Craig, <laughs> what are your thoughts on Wild West Exodus? Because that has a lot of overlap with Malifaux, and I've heard a lot of people love it. Dude, there was a coin flip on that. So when I when I was telling you my little story about how I got into how I found Malifaux, it was me looking for a Weird West, right? And um, it was basically there was two things. You, you when you look for Weird West miniatures, you're going to find Exodus or you're going to find Malifaux um, or both of them. And it, I literally went to the local game store, and they had a Malifaux book, and they didn't have a Wild West Exodus book. So I bought really? the Malifaux book. Is that so I think simple? It's ve- I think it's very possible that I could third floor wars could be 90% wild West Exodus. Cause it's a good game. Uh, it's a good game. I don't think it's as, uh, as good as Malifaux. And I, lo- it's a little too historical fiction for my taste, to be honest with you. I, I like the true fantasy nature of Malifaux. Okay. 
Um, you know, I, I don't know if I want to play Abe Lincoln on the table. See, I, I just am like, you mean you can play Jesse James? Like, that's dope. Yeah. yeah, no, it's cool. And it's cool. And, you know, and they've got the whole Firefly crew. And yep. you know, they've, got, they've got some interesting mechanics. Um, I just don't feel like it is – I'm trying to think of the word. I'm. It's not as slick as Malifaux. I think Malifaux is, is a little bit slicker and a little bit better mechanically than Wild West Exodus. But – I meet somebody and they say they love that game. I don't, I think I, I know that they're a legit gamer because it's a good game. So, and let's flip the script and this will be the last thing. And then we're going to get Craig's uh, rage quit story. So if you are kind of getting towards the top of gaming, meaning like you're a competitive player, you want to go to tournaments. What's the game for you then? I wish I wish I could. Uh, my answer has always been Guild Ball, but the dying of the scene makes that not true. Um, I've always considered Guild Ball, I think, the best competitive miniature game out there. Um, I do think it's Malifaux now, and that's you know part of that is me not playing some of the other ones like God Tier and stuff. But I think it has the. Uh, I think it it has. The, if you're a true competitive player, not a you know, you know, chase the dragon competitive player, like if you really like, you're gonna say, God damn it, I'm gonna get good at this game. Uh, Malfo, I'm going to kick some ass. Yeah, Malfo <laughs> and Guild Ball are your best bets because that's where you, as a skilled player, will grow and excel the most in those two systems. So, yeah, that's my answer. So, I, I'm going to make a bold prediction here, and I'm going to say that in not too long a time, I think that the consensus opinion is going to be God tier on this. I don't know. I, I, that. You just. Don't? just just because, like, uh, the, the, the way that it's trending is is that it's a game that will be able to be introduced to so many people and that Steamforge has such a great history of making sure that their games are balanced and competitive and can be tourney, like, uh, can be tourney, tourney games. Yeah, they're a that, competitive company, yep. Yeah, I, 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 th- I think that very shortly, like, God Tier is going to jump to the forefront in all of these categories. It'll be a great introductory game. It'll be a great competitive game. So I completely disagree with Chris. <laughs> of course you do. So, no, but basically, God Tier is designed, when we interviewed Jamie Perkins, he specifically said that the dice are designed to be swingy. Like, they're supposed to, sometimes they'll swing really high for you, and then sometimes they're going to swing really low for you. And that makes for a fun game, and you're going to have some really cool instances with it. However, when you look at a tournament play, yeah, there's going to be tournaments for the game, but a lot of competitive players like to look at, okay, consistency, okay, cleanness, and I don't know if you get that with God Tier as much. I mean, obviously the proof's in the pudding, and we'll figure out you know, if we're right or wrong here, but I think it will be comp- played competitively, but I think a lot of the high-end players aren't going to do it competitively just because of how swingy the dice are and we even saw that with our with our <laughs> with some of the boys up in raleigh they were like yeah that's a little too much for me when it comes to dice i did not that's the first i've heard that about that dice mechanic and that that yeah i am not a fan of that um a, a, except for maybe a second game right so as a second game that sounds like a lot of fun but not for my main game that's very interesting but but that is something where if that was a problem like if that really becomes a big issue, that's a fixable issue. Yeah, it is. It's not something that is fundamentally flawed with the game that they've decided to make the, it more swingy because 
it's probably going to, even if it is swingy, like it's still going to be a game that has tight mechanics and is, you know, it can still be balanced even if it's swingy. And there are things that you could do to just kind of take the swinginess out of it, right? You could, you could real, you could literally just reissue dice and make yeah. the, the hits and misses more even or, you know, such to where it's just not a swing. Like, so. I don't actually think that's going to be a problem because if they if they feel like this is impeding the growth of our game, I think that that would just get changed. Yeah, and I I think that also just hearing the design from well, once again going back to the interview with Perkins, it it's just the game's not designed to be as super competitive. I mean, they even Perkins told us that straightforward when we were interviewing him. So I remember that because they don't want assholes to be attracted to it. (laughs) (laughs) And that is a perk. That is a perk. But that can make it a more popular game. That can make it a game that is more of a tournament game where, yeah, it might not be on the very edge of the spear as far as being competitive. But if you have more people turning out to the tournaments, then you balance it all out, don't you? Now, Craig, let me ask you this because you've been involved, I feel like, in, in Malifaux long enough, you'll know. But what is the tournament scene like in Malifaux? So I am a competitive player and I'm looking to get into it. How do you feel the competitive scene for Malifaux is? Uh, it's in recovery mode, um, but growing. Um, we went through, when I say we, Malifaux went through a, uh, a tough tough year uh, between editions. And and now, now it's growing and it's not quite back to where it was um at the end of a second edition but it's only the game hasn't even been out for a year yet the third edition hasn't they uh so i think it's i think it's in a very very good place so one of the things that we do at third floor wars is we organize a national circuit where people uh basically we broke the country into conferences you compete within your conference in regular events that we score and then the top players from each conference are going to meet here in Raleigh, North Carolina, and battle it out in October for the uh, U.S. Masters. So we're, you know, we're really trying to kind of foster that competitive environment. I feel like that. Hopefully, from this point, a lot of people have gotten a lot of good ideas about some of the different games. And obviously, there's a t- that's part of the golden age. There's a ton of tabletop games we haven't even talked about or we've only mentioned. And that's just something where if you feel really passionate about one of these tabletops games. It, honestly, it doesn't matter what we say about it. It's if you're passionate enough. Yeah, it does. Get people to get. <laughs> Shut up, Pete. God, don't you know who I am? <laughs> I'm kind of a big deal. Okay. But that I don't know if you're Pete, but get into a group, you know, play some games, <laughs> promote the one that you like, and it's going to grow. It, it, it's just one of those things where people just want to play games and get together. But I think that the one of the last things we want to do here is, I believe, Craig, you owe us a rage quit story. Yeah. All right. All right. So for whatever reason, I always end up being, and, and whatever I end up doing, I end up being the center spoke in the whatever community I'm a part of, right? So and and so when I got into 40K and got into gaming, I kind of created a community around me. Um, and helped keep it organized and so on and so forth. Met a great bunch of guys playing the game. And one of the things that's important to me when I play a game is I want to know, I want to know the rules. I want to be the guy that you go to, to say, Hey Craig, you know, what about this? What happens here? Like for whatever reason, it's a, 
in my personality that it's important to me to understand what I'm doing and understand the game. So five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years I'm playing 40K. Started in second or third edition. I think it was early third edition. Fourth edition comes out, fifth edition, sixth edition. And I probably had taken maybe like four or five months off from playing. Uh, but was really like missing it, like wanted to get back and play miniatures again. So good, good buddy of mine, Danny, who uh, we hadn't played in a while, super nice guy, loved playing against him. I put all my Black Templars onto the table. He puts all of his um, Ultramarine means on the table. And I'm super excited. We start playing and like he goes, oh, you know, no, Craig, you know, and, and, and in this edition, it's this, this and this. And then and then you can't disembark. I'm like, oh, OK, all right, cool. And then, you know. We play a little bit and he goes, well, actually, you know, now that doesn't work. It's it's like it was in second edition. I'm like, oh, okay. All right. An hour into the game. Oh, the an hour into the game, I just went, I have no idea what the fuck we're doing. Like, I don't, I, like, I lost my shit. I'm like, <laughs> I, I have stopped having fun because I'm mixing up all the rules. And I wasn't mad at Danny. I, like, I, I, I'm mixing up all the rules. I don't know. I have not kept up pace in the four months that I took off. You put out three new books that have new rules in them that I didn't know about. And I've had enough. I've had enough. And I like, I, I don't think I've ever at that point had ever just stopped <laughs> playing a game. And like, not only did I stop playing the game with Danny, I stopped playing 40 K mm. at that moment. <laughs> like I was done. And what really sucks is like some of those guys that I played with that part that were part of that community ended up losing them as friends, even which oh, wow. really because you, it, you know, part of the friendship was that we all played together, you know, we just kind of drifted apart, which uh, really sucks. But yeah, that was, that's, that's it. Now um, a minor, minor other one I had is I did have one in Malifaux. And uh, for those of you that are playing Malifaux, I'm just going to tell you, pick a pole was the last time I rage quitted Malifaux. So I hold on now. I heard you mention this when you did your interview with the Errata, and you mentioned the pigapult being stupid. But you know, eventually you learned how to deal with it. What what is dumb about that pigapult that I need to be aware of? So, one what I love about Malifaux is again that player agency, and what I th I think it is a it's a bad design decision to have damage being dealt when the opponent can do nothing about it. So the entire game of 40K is about that, right? Yeah, you mean, so, so you mean no interaction, not that you, right. you, you like, can't you do anything. Can't, you can't stop him, right? The guy's going to come in, he's got a Space Wolves, and he's got a two handfuls of fucking dice, and you, you might you know you might have a saving, saving throw or something like that. But basically, you're not participating in this interaction at all. Yeah. And there's nothing you can do to influence what's about to happen. Whereas in Malifaux, by design, even with with a card mechanic, you're always involved. And if if there's you can you can say, you know, I'm gonna save some cards in my control hand to make sure that I can stop what I know is coming. Right. So with a pigapult, there's a basically a series of events which are not strategically the smart move but they're really shitty to play against where essentially the, if your positioning is wrong the pigapult player can lay down roughly about nine points of damage in a four inch area that you can do nothing to stop 
which pretty like much will kill everything. And it good. It, it's, just, <laughs> it's, just, it's just bad. Now, once you see it once, you'll never make the mistake again of, you know, putting everybody within that bubble. And it's a little bit of a one trick pony. But just that experience is in other games, a common experience. But in Malifaux, it's a very uncommon experience where you're just standing back and he's just saying, you take three damage here, you take three damage there, you take three damage there. And you're like, okay. <laughs> Whereas in Malifaux, you're used to going, well, how much damage is that going to deal? Three damage. You go, okay, well, I've got a couple choices, right? I've got some options. Yeah. Do I want to save this model now or do I need to you know, save my resources for somewhere else? So is there not a check on that? Because I know a lot of those blasts that it's like, oh, take a movement check and you, know, you can cheat that out. Is that just like, oh, you just take it? So there's a check that happens. Right. So there's a shock wave that where you have a check, a target number check, which I'm fine with. Right. So that gives me an opportunity to say, I've got four models that need to take this check. I've got two cards in my hand that can ensure these checks happen. I know which of those two models that if I don't top deck it, I'm going to cheat and make sure it happens. Yeah. Problem is, is that the Pigapult sends a model over. Right. So it shoots the model, an enemy model uh, friendly to the Pigapult, enemy model into your crew. And everybody within a certain radius of that model has to take this target number check. But then the model that came with it takes the check too. And if he fails the check, he blasts out like six damage. Oh. So the guy, even the guy who's the pick pole guy can cheat down to make sure he fails. It. Okay. So, so even if you save yours, you're still probably taking damage because they're going right. to throw theirs away essentially. Yeah. Yeah. You're still going to eat that, uh, you know, little fucking three point gremlin <laughs> who, uh, just decided to blow up. I, in the middle of your I know that's too. infuriating, but that's also hilarious kind of at the same time. Yeah. So like I said, it's, it, uh, there was a, you know, a period of time where I was just like, this is bad for the game. And, but then, then you realize that, um, a, it's expensive. Um, B it's a, it's really a bad resource choice. Like, I don't think you're going to see competitive, good players kind of do the combo. Yeah. That banked me because once you know the combo, it's incredibly easy to counter and, and mitigate and, and then destroy. And then you've taken a third of their stones off the table, yeah. but, um, that way it was not a fun day. <laughs> so, so I've heard that those gremlins are very like they're just kind of very wild as far as like how they're they play like that. Like sometimes it works out great and other times it works out terribly. And I've kind of just thought about going like the other way because normally I'm like I want to point and click and destroy stuff. But mm-hmm. as I've had some frustrating experiences, there's a part of me where I'm kind of like, maybe just to make this more fun, I should go in the direction of, we're just going to be wild. <laughs> and whatever happens, happens. And anarchy rules. And I've actually kind of thought about going that direction with that that crew. Um, maybe that's part of the answer to my, my frustration. You're, you're right. It's just yeah, to be sure. like, take this a lot lighter and just... Wild for the night, fuck being polite. Yeah, in the uh, in the sphere of Malifaux, they're definitely the uh, the most erratic of all of the uh, um, factions, but they're not that erratic, right? So they're not like orcs and goblins were in fantasy and stuff like that, or uh, even orcs in 40k. 
So, like, if you're looking for that kind of feel, Chris, honestly, I wouldn't play Malifaux, which I don't think I've ever <laughs> said on a podcast before, because I, I like Malifaux. Malifaux is a little it's it's a little serious um, and you have to put a little bit of time into it to get good at it. It's not a shoot the shit and beer and pretzels. You know, let's throw some dice type game. It's a game that I recommend if you really want to see how strategic and tactic like what level do you play at? Uh, I would go to a I would go to a different game if you're if you're going for that feel. Well, I, I just mean, I just and, mean from the standpoint that it, the guys in this area are getting into this game. I can see that. I do already have models. I am interested yep. in playing it, but I just haven't been able to devote as much time. And I kind of wonder if you know I, I'm not planning on selling my other stuff. Like you know I, I mentioned that on the other podcast that I was like frustrated. I'm just going to sell all this shit. Um, but I mean, put like, let's say eBay. I just hold on to those. Yeah, put them on eBay now. Um, let's say I just uh, I I keep those Vix, and ultimately, like, that's what I want to play, or maybe it's the Ten Thunders. But while I don't have a lot of t- time to devote to this, you know, I I was just kind of thinking it could be just fun to just kind of walk into the shop and yep. just be a wild card in in what I'm playing, and just you know, just yeah, be 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 crazy, be erratic, be. You know, so Dr. Shipman's in the house and here's my prescription and it's going to be a little bit different uh, because what ails you is not what you came in telling me it was wrong with you. (laughs) What you're going to do is you're going to go and you're going to buy the dreamer crew out of Neverborn and you're going to pick up that keyword. And here's why. One, it's going to give you a, a, a play experience that you've, it plays different than not only everything in Malifaux, but everything you've ever played before. Ooh. Like it, it's really just a different, a different thing, completely different thing. And that I think will scratch an itch for you where you're like, huh, this is, I've never played anything like this. It feels different. It's got a shit ton of smash face. Like you're going to, you are going to punch people in the nose with a dreamer crew. That'll be fun. Enjoy that. Um, and I think that you're also going to have a. I think you're also going to have a ton of fun with it. So I think you'll get kind of that loosey goosey that you were kind of talking about with the uh, gremlins. So that mm. that that's my prescription. And I actually thought about that when I was listening to that episode uh, with you. I was like, this, Chris needs to be playing dreamer. There you go. Okay. So wait, is that the is is that like that creepy little girl? Uh, so it's the little boy and a huge oh, monster. Yeah. Okay. You know what? I like that. I, I like that. That. Yeah. Like. Let me ask you this, Craig. I'm listening to the early episodes of the Breach broadcast. Yep. And when they're referring to the little boy playing with his friend, is this the Dreamer crew? That's Lord Chompy. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yep. They, they it, um, build up there, Chris. Yeah, it's, it's such a cool, I mean, talk about lore. I mean, you're talking about this little boy goes to sleep and he's earth side, right? He's on the other side of the breach. He's, he's on our side of the breach. This little boy goes to bed at night and he has dreams. And in his dreams, he's got this buddy, this like big monster Pooh Bear type buddy that he plays with in his dreams. What he, what the little boy doesn't realize is that the little boy's manifested himself in Malifaux on the other side of the breach and is fucking killing people. Yeah, he's like with this playing games, but he's like eating people right. alive, Chris. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So like, it's just it's just this cool th- concept of this little kid that goes to sleep and you know brings demons to Malifaux in his sleep. It's really cool. 
creepy as shit too. Oh wait, and and that's that teddy bear thing. Correct, Teddy. So, you've got Teddy. You got the stitch together. Um, well, I've got like some limited edition teddy bear that like uh, I never even you're built. A I just, player, Chris. I just, I just yeah, had I it because I like a friend said, "Hey, I think you'd think this is cool," and I was like, "Well, that is cool." So, all right. Well, this this may be a good answer in my life. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well. Craig, Chris, is there anything else you guys want to share before we uh, sign off? Obviously, Craig, you probably want to plug your podcast for people that listen to us but haven't found you yet. Yeah, if you haven't haven't found us, it's uh, Tabletop Talk. It's on all of the um, all of the uh, platforms. Uh, thirdfloorwars.com. You can also check us out there. Cover Malfo. Cover everything else. Um, I the other plug I'm going to give is you guys. I'm a big fan and a listener of you guys, um, and. Uh, really enjoyed this. Very anxious to get the two of you on my show. <laughs> well, we, we got to get some more of the Malifaux experience. But once we get there, I'm definitely interested to talk Malifaux because I'm really getting into the game. I'm glad. Okay, what about you, Chris? Man, I you really got? want these guys now. Are you looking at the models? Yeah, I'm looking at these. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I got a question. There's one where he's like in like a night shirt, but then it looks like there's another version that has him with the cricket bat. So yeah, so that's the the nightshirt version is the second edition, and the grown up dreamer, which is kind of the uh, middle school dreamer, is the one that's third edition. Okay, but I can play the second edition one, like yeah, the models are the still? same. It's just, okay, it, yeah, it's just because that's going to be so much creepier. <laughs> oh, I, I yeah. prefer the kid one. Yeah, yeah. The okay. So anybody listening. Feel free to hit me up if you have this little boy holding the hand of a monster. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. You're going to enjoy it. <laughs> okay, well, I appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, so so I guess we it's it's time for us to sign off. So, I don't know, are we rolling dice, flipping cards, and throwing salt? Is that what we're doing now? I, I guess. I don't I don't know. <laughs> All right, we're going to have to get some really expanded. Rage Quit Wire Card Sleeve is going to make it a thing. All right, we'll talk to y'all. We'll talk to y'all later again. Thanks uh, for coming on, Craig. Later. You guys.